My personal journey in worship has been an interesting one to say the least. I did not grow up in a worshiping family, so when I came to Jesus Christ when I was a 16-year-old kid, my initial worship services were about my first, at least the first ones that were meaningful. And the kind of worship services I came up with were revivalistic. Uh, We were the kind of folks in worship that we'd make it to heaven if we didn't run right past it. Uh, And it was a thrill to exalt Jesus and lift him up in personal conversion and in his second coming and about the cross and rescuing the perishing and reaching the world. Well, soon after I came to Christ, I went on to uh, return to Texas and went to college and became part of a a church there and began to preach revivals uh, around East Texas. And the worship was different. It was from the same hymn book, but not the same songs. Uh, Just about every church it uses a hymn book or a series of songs or some collection of songs has favorite places in that hymn book and neglects the others. That's generally what they do. They each have a personality. And the truth is, is that the hymn book uh, is usually a collection of traditions. Most hymn books are. And that was uh, the case with the hymn books we were using in East Texas, the Baptist hymnal, the 1975 version, or if we were blessed, the 1957 version, some thought. But I recall that the music in East Texas was far different than what it was uh, when I came to Christ in my home church in California. And that is, it wasn't revivalistic, it was traditional. And it was, frankly, quite annoying to begin with as a young man. I have to admit to you, and I'm ashamed to admit that, but it was slower, and it wasn't as loud, and it didn't have as much fire. Well, something happened soon after I was introduced to that. Somebody invited me to join the choir at the Second Baptist Church of Marshall, Texas. And so I got up in the choir, and I began to watch the people worship. Well, when I first came to Christ, my heart melted over the revivalism we were singing about. And I was sure if I could get my friends anywhere near that, they'd get under the spout and watch the glory come out. And when I got into those traditional worship services and got into the choir, I saw the same sincerity. And even though it was different and far more traditional than the revivalistic tradition that I had come up with or been converted to, my heart melted there too. Because I saw people honoring Jesus just like I wanted to. And it made all the difference in the world. And I I began to embrace that and adopt that. So I was not only revivalistic and traditional in my worship, uh, I was not only revivalistic, now I was traditional in my worship. And I continued to preach and traveled uh, quite a bit when I was in seminary, then went to go pastor. And uh, the places where I served, I think probably for the most part, we were traditional or a new tradition uh, with some blended and all. Uh, It wasn't necessarily what I preferred. I really preferred what I came up with as a kid when I first came to Christ. I've always preferred that. But um, uh, that's what we did. And I really never had my preferences met, even though for four years of my ministry, I was my own minister of music. But my job was not to impose my preferences on the people, but to take what we had and take what they had and lift it up to God in pure praise and worship to Him. Well, then I went to Southwestern Seminary and returned to Texas to more of a metropolitan area there in Fort Worth with a long-standing and very impressive music school. And I arrived there, and the worship was different. And I have to admit to you, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was terribly annoyed to begin with. I really was. Um, It didn't have the rousing stateliness 
of what I was accustomed to and had been accustomed to the previous uh, 20 years. Uh, the organ was almost never played, almost never was, though we had an organist on the faculty. Uh, the band was sometimes a little too driving for my taste. And once a week, and we had chapel three times a week, by the way, and once a week it was dedicated entirely to the band. And we would do, and, and it, it really, it was a terrible distraction to me. Because for 20 years I've been worshiping with a little revivalism and a lot of tradition. Until one day, while I was sitting on the front row, I turned around and I looked at the students. And just like the older adults in the church where I was when I was in college, where I learned to appreciate tradition, these students were giving Jesus their all in glory in worship, and my heart melted again. So I embraced it. And I said, thank God for it all. If people are lifting up the Lord in a way that's biblically defined, the truth is I'm going to join them any chance I get. I'm going to lift up Jesus as well. My journey really does in many ways express an awful lot of the change that's gone on in worship, in American worship. And I want to ask and answer the question for just a moment, what has happened to worship and why? Why have changes come about in worship in churches? You might be surprised that some have and may be wondering. You're pretty satisfied with what you had. Why weren't others satisfied with it? Well, there are a number of influences. Uh, Christian camps especially for teenagers and on occasion for children, have influenced this. Kids would go to camp and we'd take care of it and pay for it, or families would, and they would go worship God there in a retreat center or a conference center and have the most dynamic and the most vivacious and the most thrilling and meaningful worship they'd ever had in their life and did not sing a single song that they'd sung in church on Sunday morning. I'd been a part of that. I'd been a camp pastor for three full summers, done a lot of youth camps and conferences, and witnessed it with my own eyes. And so their most meaningful worship experiences were far different than what they experienced on Sunday morning. Not only that, but the development of Christian radio. Uh, Christian radio has been an enormous influence. Uh, Christian music writers have written new songs and new uh, worship uh, songs. And just like other radio experiences, People grow stale on songs if they don't quickly change them and move on. Now, oftentimes, if you don't listen to Christian music during the week, you can sing the same song month after month or quarter after quarter, year after year for decades, and it not grow stale. But when you listen to Christian radio, that's what happens. It ends up growing stale, and it's constant. Children's church is another influence. The music that is there has almost always been different than what we have found in the corporate worship experience where the adults are present. Then there's been changes in music education. There's been a decline in music education, and so the traditional musical instruments are no longer what are taught uh, among kids. In fact, there aren't many taking it. Budgets have been reduced in school districts all over, the world, all over the country for that reason, and many of the musical instruments that kids are learning today and others are learning today are not the traditional music instruments. They happen to be guitars, and they happen to be drum sets and other musical instruments like that. There's a negative in influence here, and that happens to be the lostness of the current young generation. The current young generation is more non-Christian than any previous generation in American history. And so there's a sense of urgency behind the young and the middle-aged and older adult, by the way, to reach that generation for Christ 
and to do all they can to present Christ in all of His glory in a word and in a worship that they can understand. Another negative influence happens to be biblical illiteracy that dovetails together, but oftentimes the traditional language, which was really not so much biblical as it was theological, is oftentimes a foreign language to many today. Then there is a positive influence, and that is biblicism. There are many that are encouraging us to ask the question, is this merely traditional or is it biblical? Is this merely a trend in contemporary or is it biblical? And that's a good question because we're to be anchored in the Scripture. And then finally, I think more than most have recognized, in fact, I don't know anyone else that's recognized this, and that happens to be the influence of Bible translations. Let me ask you to help me with a little survey, a quick survey here. How many of you grew up hearing or reading or listening to or being taught the King James Version of the Bible? Would you? Okay. How many of you that were brought up that way are today using a modern translation of the Bible other than the King James? What I want to say to you is the changes that have taken place in worship are the changes that have taken place in Bible translations and for the same reasons. There's some of you that would say, I've changed the Bible translation that I use from the King James Version to a modern translation because I can understand it better. And that is precisely what has taken place in worship music. And instruments are something like a language. And the language that we use in worship, of course, obviously is a language. So many of the changes that have taken place have been changed and arranged in order to make worship understandable and authentic to those that are worshiping. So what in the world are we to do in this era of rapid change when it comes to worship? Well, Isaiah is going to help us out here. In Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42 could be summarized in the one word, incomparable. And there are several things that he covers that are incomparable in this text. There is the incomparable servant of the Lord in verses 1 through 4. Now, the context of this is back in chapter 41, beginning in verse 21, down to verse number 29. And here Isaiah establishes, or the Lord establishes the background through Isaiah, and he's comparing his real servant in chapter 42 with the false gods and the false deities and the false loves that Judah was seeking in that day. And he basically turns the contrast on a couple of things. God says to the people, your idols cannot tell the future. Your idols cannot prophesy like I can. In fact, I have and I've come through as you have seen, but these false gods and false idols cannot prophesy. And then, not only that, but they cannot change the life and they cannot change the heart. In fact, they're not able to do so at all. And so God picks up in chapter 42 and says, they cannot help but behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And then he goes on and says, He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth, finally. He will not fail nor be discouraged until he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now, he's incomparable in many ways. Now, it's very clear he is speaking prophecy 
of the Lord Jesus and when Christ comes. Rabbis before Christ said this is the Messiah. Well, after Christ came, guess what they said? Oh, we changed our minds. That's not the Messiah. And that's precisely what happened. But before Jesus arrived, they were very clear and articulate in their literature and other places that this happens to be the coming Messiah. And Matthew applies this to Jesus in Matthew 12 and Luke to Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And there are several things about him that are incomparable. Verse 1, there's an incomparable mandate. He says, Behold, my servant whom I am uphold. Not the ones that have gone on their own commission and their own power and their own assignment, but my servant, and I uphold him. He's my chosen one. He's my elect one. No one else is. And in him my soul delights. And to certify this, I'm going to put my spirit upon him. He will carry the power of the Holy Spirit, which indicates the pleasure and the delight of heaven. So he has an incomparable mandate. There's only one that can ever be claimed to be sent by God as Savior and Messiah of the world, and that is Jesus Christ. Then he goes on. He has an incomparable mission, and he alludes to it four times in these four verses. He said he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And then at the end of verse 3, he will bring forth justice for truth. Finally, someone does that. And then verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. This is his mission. The word justice, the root word of the word justice was used for the plan of the tabernacle and the temple. And so it's something like a blueprint. God's vision and God's blueprint for relationships and relationships on earth and relationships with heaven are summarized in Jesus Christ, his servant. And that happens to be justice. When something is just, it follows the blueprint of God. Then in verses 2 and 3, he has incomparable mercy. Incomparable mercy. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be publicized. In other words, he won't be arrogant in the street. And then there are people that are like bruised reeds, just a simple hollow stick may have been broken, he'll not break them. And a smoking flax, that happens to be the wick of a candle that's about to go out. Smoking flax, he will not quench at all. In other words, when someone is broken, when someone appears to be worthless, when someone is discarded, Jesus Christ is marvelously tender with them. And in fact, their difficult and their sorry estate does not encourage him. In fact, their difficult and sorry estate appeals to him and attracts him because he can do something about it. He has incomparable mercy. And then in verse 4, he has incomparable metal. He is strong. He's made of strong stuff. In verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged until he's established justice in the earth. Beloved, let's make one thing clear. Let's get it down now and let's get it down straight. Jesus Christ has made promises that he will perform on this earth and he will do it. And he will not be discouraged and he will not fail. He will reign. He will come through. And these are the things he is stating about himself. And so when it comes to being incomparable, Jesus as a person stands alone in the earth and there is no one like him. He's got an incomparable ministry also. There's the incomparable ministry of the servant in verses 5 through 9. In verse 5, thus says the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. He goes on and says, I will do something in the future with justice and truth, and I want you to be assured that I will because of what I've done in the past. Uh, Emerson said, what I've seen of the Creator makes me trust Him for what I have not seen 
And I think he's entirely wise. In other words, we base our hope on the future of what God will do because of what he's done in the past. And here he says, I created the heavens and the earth. Listen, when our God says he's going to do something in the future, he's not someone waiting just just get started with his life. He's not someone who is just proposing to do something without a track record. This is a God who's already come through in creation. And if creation is as it is, what a wonderful thing the future must be in his hands. He's got a track record and he's already come through. So it's a ministry of hope. He's not merely proposing to do something for the first time. He's done so much already. Then verse 6, there's a ministry of assurance. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant or a constitution to the people as a light to the Gentiles. This is what God wants to do with the outcast of the earth. He gives Jesus Christ as a covenant or a constitution to the earth. Instead of paper written in ink, and there's plenty of that, by the way, and it's a helpful thing, God represents His covenant, His constitution for the kingdom, in Jesus Christ. If you want to know how God reigns, and you want to know how God rules and operates and intends to operate in your life, take a good, long, hard look at Jesus Christ and be pleased and exalt His name. Then there's a ministry of restoration, verse, uh, the end of verse 6, uh, on down to verse 7. He's a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to uh, those who sit in darkness and in the prison house. In other words, he's going to return everything to a Garden of Eden existence. You know, the Bible begins with a garden and it ends with a garden. And that's what we're trying to display in our Act 22 project, by the way. It begins with a garden and it ends with a garden. But in the end, there's a great throne where Christ, the Lamb of God, sits and he reigns and rules over all. And the reason the Bible ends with a garden is that that's where God is leading everything. He's bringing everything and restoring everything to a Garden of Eden-like existence. And Jesus demonstrated that in the Gospels. If you want to know what the future looks like and what God intends to do with the future, read carefully the Gospels, and the life of Christ is a prophecy of the future. What is the future going to look like? It's going to look precisely like Jesus Christ, and I can't wait to get there. Then there is the ministry of elimination in verse 8. I'm the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. In the kingdom, God's going to eliminate all idols, and you would expect Him to do so. They reduce and they they minimize the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And they're always attempting to compete because of the human heart. They're always attempting to compete with His majesty and His glory. And God is going to eliminate each and every one of them. And then there's a ministry of knowledge in verse 9. Behold, the former things that I've prophesied in the past have come to pass, and new things for, for the future, implicitly, I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you, of them. God, in His Word in the Bible, is the only one that gets into detailed, specific prophecy of the future. There's no other sacred religious text that goes into the detail of the future like the Bible does. Now, what quality must you have in order to tell the future accurately, in detail, and specifically? What quality must you have? You've got to know everything. You've got to be omniscient. And that is recorded on the pages of God's Word. And so God here is telling in in the text, I get this thing right. 
I've got a track record. You can trust me. In fact, it's time to sing. In verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. This leads to incomparable worship. Incomparable worship. Somebody claimed more than a century ago that we work at our play and play at our work. Leland Riken has said, today the confusion has deepened. We worship our work, work at our play, and play in our worship. And God would have none of that beginning in verse number 10. There's worship with a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now why is that? Why is it necessary to sing new songs? Why would God command that and establish among His covenant people singing a new song as a standard of righteousness? Why would He do that? Because the human heart has a tendency to get stale. The human heart has a tendency to grow comfortable with uh, what it already knows and is not challenged to move on forward. So sing to the Lord a new song. Be awakened. And then there's worship with a new crowd. Look at verse 10, the end of verse 10, or the second part of verse 10 down to verse 12. And His praise from the ends of the earth. As far as we can stretch the earth, everyone there come and worship Him. You who go down to the sea, well, that happens to be sailors. An impressive thing, if you know anything about the Navy, for sailors to worship the Lord. And all that is in it, you coastlands and inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The villages of Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Now, the villages of Kedar and the inhabitants of Selah were the ancient enemies of the Israelites. And what God is here declaring is that through His servant, Jesus Christ, there's going to be such a great conversion of these enemies of God. They will give praise to Him, and they will exalt Him. C.S. Lewis observed that the Scripture nowhere presents Jesus Christ as a mere teacher. There are some think that they praise Jesus by saying, I think He was a good teacher. Well, that's blasphemy by saying too little of Christ. He was far more than that. Was He a good teacher? Yes, but... Far more than that. In fact, the response to Jesus Christ when he preached and taught was not, you know, he's a good teacher. The response to Jesus Christ was three, Lewis said. They either hated him or they were terrorized by him or they adored him. But there was never any mere mild casual response. One pastor said that this generation has been to do with Jesus Christ what previous generations of Christians have not been able to do, and that is make Jesus appear to be dull. There is no dullness, there is no casualness to the worship of the Son of God in verses 10 through 12. Now how does God's portrait of His Son shape the future of worship? Several things about future worship and worship at Beach Haven Baptist Church. One, worship will be incomparably Christ-centered. Now, do you know anything about the biblical timeline at all? Do you know the biblical timeline? How many centuries before Christ did Isaiah prophesy? Well, Isaiah is prophesying around 740 B.C. So, eight centuries before Jesus Christ comes, Isaiah is taking the whole earth and focusing their attention on him. If he can do that eight centuries before Jesus Christ, we can do that now 21 centuries after him. With all that we know of Jesus Christ to focus on him. Worship services then are to be focused on Jesus Christ. He's to be the motive. 
He's to be the focus. He is to be the objective. And His pleasure reigns over all. In fact, the content as well. Never, ever should we have a worship service where a conservative Old Testament believing Jew or a Muslim would ever agree with everything that we said or sung. I've been to some worship services like that because Christ did not appear in the worship service. And so worship is to be Christ-centered. Now you're saying, well, of course it is. Where do you think you are? You're at Beach Haven Baptist Church. And worship is to be Christ-centered. That goes without saying. Like saying, I woke up this morning and I started breathing without any effort at all. In fact, I did it through the night and I'm rather good at it. Of course worship is to be Christ-centered. Well, not so fast. Not so fast. Scripture from Genesis to Revelation presses and pokes and prods and goads the people of God to constantly give their worship to Him. That is the theme of the Scripture. It is repeated. Now, why do you think that is? Because we're tempted not to especially good people. It is very, very easy to develop a thin layer of religious language and not change what's underneath it. It's very easy to do that. It's very easy to have a thin, impressive layer of religious language in worship, and underneath is the molten lava of self-worship, even among good people. It surfaces often in comments we make about worship. Have you ever heard anyone say, you know, I got a blessing out of worship today? Have you ever heard anyone say, I like that song, I like that sermon? Well, maybe the song, not the sermon so much, but have you ever heard anyone comment and evaluate the music and the worship that way by saying, I liked it? Or, I was greatly comforted today in worship. Well, let me just say to you real quickly, I hope that you get a blessing today, and I hope that you're comforted, and I hope you like everything that we have here. I really do. But what I want to say is, these things are byproducts and tertiary issues. They are not the heart and substance of worship. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether we like anything. It doesn't matter whether it blessed us, and it doesn't matter whether it comforts us. What matters is, did it bless the Lord Jesus, did He like it, and did it give Him great, awesome satisfaction? Now, when it does, the byproduct is it may very well do that. But if you look through worship services in the Bible, some worship services were not pleasant at all. Some worship services in the Scripture absolutely terrorized those involved. Can you imagine being with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and all of a sudden the threshold of the temple begins to shake and quiver. Man, I think the roof was about to come down on me. That I might die. In fact, there are things that take place all through the Scripture where they get into the presence of God and they fear before Him. Oh, they didn't like that. But God did. And Scripture is constant on this. And let me say to you, if you're a faithful worship, to, uh, if you're faithful in worship attendance, you're especially vulnerable to what we're talking about here. Here's why. The person that's living a scandalous life, the person that's an embarrassment to the family, the person that's an embarrassment to the community, the person whose behavior is about to cause the loss of their job, the person who is engaged in some kind of gross immorality knows he or she is not worshiping God. 
they know something is wrong with me. And they know they need a radical repentance to get right with the Lord. But the good person gets some satisfaction from here, there, and yon, and ends up serving, and underneath is not aware that what constantly lurks and is always desiring to nip at the heels happens to be the molten lava of self-worship and self-interest and self-desire. We've got to constantly jerk ourselves into repentance and turn ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. In other words, we've got to labor personally, to prepare ourselves for worship, to exalt Christ and Christ alone, no matter what we think about worship, to exalt Him alone and give enough intentionality and effort to that like families have preparing for their high school seniors' graduation. Worship will be incomparably Christ-centered. The second thing, worship will be incomparably authentic. In verses 1 through 4, we find the nature, the heart, the soul of the servant. Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 9, we find that his behavior is perfectly consistent with the character in verses 1 through 4. In other words, there's not a gap between the character and nature of the servant on one hand and the behavior of the servant on the other. In other words, Jesus Christ was thoroughly authentic, sincere, sinless, and true. He did not say one thing and do another. That's not the case with others. On his deathbed, Muhammad cried out to Allah that he would forgive him. When Jesus Christ was on his deathbed at the cross, he asked God to forgive others. He had no sin to forgive. And so the worship of Jesus Christ must be marked with authenticity. That's one of the reasons sometimes people struggle in worship. Sometimes the music or the song that they're singing or sometimes the vocabulary words that are found in it are not words that they were ordinarily used, and they fear that they would be engaging in a put-on in order to use that particular music. Well, what do I do? How can I do this? How can I be authentic in worship? I want to mention four things real quickly. One, never take worship changes personally. I want to assure you, those who plan worship do not plan worship with the intention of insulting you when they make changes. That's not it at all. That's not on their heart. That is not on their Mind. They don't sit in a bathtub full of scissors thinking, how in the world can I offend the people that I love? We don't plan to insult. So whenever a worship change takes place, do not take it personally. But the second thing, resist the temptation to criticize other people's worship. I've always struggled with this. I've got some serious theological and biblical concerns about how worship takes place in many other places. But I have stopped short of criticizing because my heart just is not in it. I can't go that far. It doesn't mean I'm more righteous than those who do, but I have been taught. In fact, I was reminded by John Duncan a few months ago that Michael, David's wife, criticized him as he was dancing before the Lord in 2 Samuel 6. And she said, well, you sure did dishonor yourself in front of all those cute little girls out there today. That's what she did. And he said, well, you know what? I'll be even more undignified than this. That's what he said. I will be even more undignified than this. And so they got into a spat about David's worship when they were returning the ark back to Jerusalem. I don't know what David's attitude was like, but during his worship, he was exuberant. He was thrilled with worshiping God. Now, I don't know that that's normative. I know it's descriptive in the Scripture. But the Scripture then follows that with serious judgment 
upon Michael. Michael was to deliver the next generation that would deliver the generation that would deliver the generation that would bring the Messiah into the world. But that's not what happened. God bypassed Michael and brought the Messiah through Bathsheba. That's what he did. Be very careful about criticizing others' worship. Number three, grow to embrace all that pleases Jesus Christ. And why would you not want to? The effort is to expand our worship and expand our appreciation for God so that we can use more tools and more opportunities and more measures to exalt Jesus Christ so that one day we will encompass everything in worship that pleases Him and meets His standard. And by the way, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to embrace all that does please Jesus. The Christian life, including worship, is not a buffet of choices at all. It's not that at all. We don't get to choose. We embrace everything that pleases Jesus Christ. And so if there ever comes a time when a song is sung or a piece is done or some element of worship arises, whether it happens to be handbells or an organ or a percussion or a guitar, whatever it happens to be, Worship God anyway. B.B. McKinney used to say, there are two really good times to sing. One, when you feel like it, and two, when you don't. And I think he was right. Grow to embrace all that pleases Christ. Number four, keep yourself accountable. Always keep yourself accountable. Be open to Isaiah. And I am sure the Lord's planted Isaiah is amongst us to take our attention and place our attention on Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons I appreciate the worship we have at Beach Haven. I do. If you're going to, if you're going to worship God here at Beach Haven, you're going to have to be accustomed, and this is a buzzword today, I don't really prefer the word, but you're going to have to be accustomed to diversity. You're going to have to be accustomed to that. And that's a good thing. And that is why we don't have a worship service for young people and then one for older people. We want them together because, quite frankly, we need one another. Those who appreciate the old need to hear from those who appreciate the new. And those who appreciate the new need to hear from those who appreciate the old to expand and to grow. Now, it is rarely comfortable. And most churches are not opting for the direction that we're going in worship. They aren't. They're segregating their congregations. That's just something I don't want to do to our young people. And that's something I don't want to do to our older people. We can keep one another from staleness. We can keep each other from being too casual. We can keep each other from being silly and other ways and by remaining together in worship. But there's a third thing. Worship will be incomparably missionary. In verses 10 through 12, God invites the earth to worship His Son and invites those who are outside the grace of God to come, but they're called to exalt anyway. In other words, there's the kind of worship that is provided here where even the nations and those outside grace can come and exalt the Lord if they are humble. Now, there are some who argue for worship changes using the justification We need to reach more people with our worship. I sympathize with that, and I understand that. I will say to you, that is a difficult line of thinking to justify, though. 
You might be right, you might be wrong on that. The truth is, there are some who are arguing that people are not reached, especially millennials, by worship style. That might be right, that might be wrong, depending on what you mean. What we do at Beach Haven Baptist Church is that we do not design worship services to reach people. We design worship services to reach God. That's what we do. That, as a byproduct, will reach people. Because the human heart was made to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and to magnify Him. And whenever that happens in a congregation, people are drawn when Jesus is lifted up. And so the truth is, authentic worship as a byproduct does reach people. In that sense, it's got to be missionary. And it becomes missionary when it is authentic, and it's authentic when we grow in our ability to worship God. And so we're going to be very careful through the years not to erect barriers between those outside the faith and our God and our worship services. But you know, more pressing than those barriers are the barriers we erect ourselves to keep us from Him. Some have delayed giving themselves to Christ, and that is a, that is a barrier. Some have resisted the movement of His Holy Spirit to come to Christ, and that's a barrier. Some have neglected Jesus Christ and don't think much of Him, not nearly as much as the Father does. But Jesus said the way to reach God, even in worship, in prayer, in heaven, in forgiveness, is through Him. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father, what? Except by me. Jesus is the only hope for true worship and true prayer and true hope and true salvation and true forgiveness and true heaven. You and I were made to give worship to Christ, and we can after we have given Him our guilt. And He invites you to do that today. If you'll speak humbly to Him about your guilt and turn it over to Him, trusting His cross and His resurrection, God will gratefully and quickly cancel your sin. Albert Thornwaldson the Dutch artist sculpted a statue of Jesus Christ. And in that statue, his arms were outstretched and his head was bowed. He asked a friend to come see it, and the man observed it and said, I can't see his face. And Albert said, if you want to see his face, you must get on your knees. Isn't it time to bow the knee before Jesus Christ today? Stop resisting. Stop delaying and come to Him quickly. Here's what we'll do. We'll stand in just a moment. Our staff will be here in front. We're going to invite you to come and share with them your spiritual need. We want to give you immediate help to turn to Jesus Christ. And we want to enable you to do that and do all that we can to help. Maybe God's moving you to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church, to walk with Christ, Christ closer in a fellowship like this. Or maybe there's some other need that you've got. I want you to quickly stand with me and I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing and we're going to ask you to come. Our Father, we thank You that the Lord Jesus is incomparable. And God, the cry of my heart this morning is that He would be treated as such. Oh God, let Him be treated as such, incomparably. But Lord, for those outside of Christ, may they have an incomparable urgency and trust in Him. For those that need to become part of Beach Haven, let them have an incomparable love for His church. For those that have got sorrows and burdens, under which they're laboring. I pray they'd have an incomparable faith and quickness 
to cast these burdens upon you. We pray that you would take care of this time now, that Jesus would be exalted. And when all is said and done, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable in His sight because really, that's frankly all that matters. We're going to sing. and We're going to ask you to step out from where you are. If others need to remove themselves out of the way, they'll quickly do that. You come and staff will help you with your spiritual need. Would you come? Let's sing and you come. And just as I have.